0: Oh, we're changing gears for the summer, and we're gonna dig into a brand new study on the book of Ecclesiastes, which a lot of people either love or hate, while a lot of people just ignore it for a lifetime. But it's in the Bible for a reason, and we're gonna find out what that reason is starting today. But before we jump in, let me give you some background. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, who, if you know anything about him, was one of the richest men who ever lived. And he was the wisest man who ever lived. God said that. So he was one of the richest and the very wisest who ever lived. But this is Solomon towards the end of his life reflecting and looking back. And so this book is one of the five. The, the Bible is comprised of 66 books of all kinds of different genre. This book is one of the five books in the Bible that is considered poetry or wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are all considered poetry or wisdom literature. And that's worth keeping in mind as we dig in this summer. Because poetry is often filled with raw emotions, more than precise and pithy statements. Some people love raw and real, and other people prefer cleaned up everything with a bow on it. But this is not your bow book. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes fits the genre of memoir. Because memoir, as opposed to biography, is a true but very select and limited slice of someone's life. That's usually filled with honest confessions, as well as brutal and personal disclosures. That are very often unsettling and disturbing. While at the same time being confessions that many people can relate to, so that they say, wow... You too? You too? I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who's ever felt this. And so here's what just might propel this book to a new level of popularity because memoir has shot to the very top of the bestseller list today. Whenever you check it out, and I'm a book guy, you'll find that any number of the top 10 books are memoirs. It is shot to the top of the bestseller list. In fact, memoirs have increased 40% In the last two years, 40%. Why? I'll tell you why. People have become weary of social media. I know I have, right? That constantly projects Instagram photos of perfect places and beautiful faces that leave you thinking you're the only one not having a grand time with a less than perfect life, right? And so long before J.D. Vance penned his best-selling hillbilly elegy memoir, God gave us Ecclesiastes. He's always way ahead of us. Gave us Ecclesiastes, a memoir that we can learn from. And so here's here's the plan for the summer. We're going to dig into the details in the weeks ahead, all summer long. But today, all I want to do is frame it up by reading the prologue and the epilogue. In other words, I want to show you how the book starts, show you how it ends, and then give you a big overview of some of the most important themes that you're going to see and learn from in the weeks ahead. You excited? You ready? All right, go there. Find it. The pages may be stuck together. You may never have been there before. But if you just turn to the middle of your Bible, you just might hit it. Or you might hit Psalms. If you hit Psalms, keep going right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. Now skip to chapter 12. We'll go epilogue. Chapter 12, verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of delight. Truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Goad, a goad, you guys, was a sharp pointed stick that they would use to prod an ox to keep him moving with the cart. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness. "...of the flesh, the end of all the matter, all has been heard, fear God, and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil." What can we learn from this honest memoir from one of the richest and wisest men that ever lived? Oh, here's the first thing. As we go through Ecclesiastes, number one, you will see it all through this book. You'll see what sin has done to our world. You're going to see what sin has done to our world. In other words, to make sense out of Ecclesiastes, you guys, to make sense out of Ecclesiastes, you've got to go back To Genesis. You got to go back to Genesis. Where you see how a good. Loving. Gracious. Personal God. Created us. In his image. And for his glory. And placed us in a glorious paradise. Where we experienced. Perfect fellowship with each other. And him. Look at me. But. Adam and Eve, the first human beings created in his image, the first created beings in the image of God preferred to be God. And so they rebelled and pushed away from him thinking, thinking that they knew better and that they could find wisdom and real life apart from him. In fact, they believed the lie of Satan that God was actually holding out on them, that there was something better apart from God. They rebelled, pushed away from him thinking they knew better, could find wisdom, could find real life. In other words, all of creation, this is what we see from the Bible, all of creation was interconnected to a web of life that was tethered to a gracious, loving, wise Good personal God. But when they rebelled, when they made that tragic choice to push away from Him, the tether that connected life to God was severed and all of creation collapsed in on itself. Life became crooked and twisted for the first time. Death became real. There had not been death. And futility or frustration became the new norm with tentacles now. Futility and frustration, the new norm with tentacles now that touch and twist every aspect and level of life here on this earth. Nothing has gone untouched by the repercussions of this one sinful choice. Sin, sin has twisted, has brought death, has brought frustration. Go to Genesis three and let me show you what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter three, beginning in verse 16. Genesis three, verse 16. This is God speaking. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. You're going to see a word used several times that did not exist prior to sin and rebellion. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. There's pain. There's a curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Everything just got harder. Way harder. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you're going to eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Skip to verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We're in pain. We're under a curse And we are now exiled or alienated from God and the original world he intended for us to live in and thrive in. Pain, frustration, curse, alienation. That's what we experience now. And here's where it starts. Continually, the world just is baffled by what people do when someone does something heinous they continue to put it in the category of mental illness, whatever, bipolar. There'll be new words that'll just keep, keep, keep coming up to try to explain. How could someone do this? Genesis 3 explains it. We're the ones that shouldn't stay confused. Pain, confusion, frustration, violence, curse, alienation. This explains what is going on in our world. And Here's what's interesting. Human beings rebelled against God thinking they would gain something better. What we gained was pain. And what we lost was the tether that connected us and all of creation to a good, loving, wise, personal God. Loss is what we experienced. Confusion and pain is what we have gained. And so... If it was appropriate, I would have you tear out Ecclesiastes from your Bible. If you've got a Bible you've had for years and it's already falling apart, do this. If that section's already loose, perfect. I would have you tear out Ecclesiastes, all 12 chapters, and I would have you put it right here at the end of Genesis 3. If you don't mind marking in your Bible, and I don't, if you've got space between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, write right there go read Ecclesiastes and say what the page is in your Bible. In my Bible, it's page 703. So I'm like, go read Ecclesiastes now, page 703, because it explains and it fills in, now this is what life will be like. Apart from God. Alienated from God. The tether is severed that connected us to a wise, loving, good God. Ecclesiastes chapter, All 12 chapters could go right here in between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. You see, Genesis 3 is the decree of what sin has done to our world in general. But if you're not careful, we don't experience anything in general, do we? It's like Ecclesiastes is the personal and painful memoir of what now every human being experiences. Because every human being now is touched deeply and personally by sin. You can't escape it. All of us are touched deeply and personally by, this had a huge effect. Romans 5.12 says when Adam sinned, now that sin has been passed on to every single human being. We are born sinners, born in the image of God, but alienated from God. In the image of God, but actually rebelling against God and thinking it wouldn't be good to know him or follow him or submit to him. That's what Genesis three is telling us has done to all of us now as human beings. Ecclesiastes is the painful and personal memoir of what it feels like to still be created in the image of God. Every human being is born still in the image of God. To still be in the image of God, but to be alienated from God and trying to be satisfied without him thinking right here, right now will be enough. But it's never enough, never enough, never enough. Every century, every generation, it doesn't matter how much, quote, better things get, right? How much more comforts we have. It doesn't. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. But number two, let me show you something else we're going to learn. You'll see what life without God does to us. Oh, it's one thing to consider what life without God does to our world in general. But this book is going to show you what it does to each one of us personally. And he drives it all home to us. The reason some people hate this book, he drives it all home to us by using some of the most disheartening and disturbing phrases. Not once or twice or three times. Over and over and over. In, In a sense, the way the book is actually written puts on display one of the things that is most frustrating about our world. Repetition, repetition and hard, repetition and hard and wandering and unclear. He uses some of the most disheartening and disturbing phrases over and over and over in this gut-wrenching memoir. Depending on your translation, you're going to see him use the word vanity or meaningless or futile. You ready? 32 times. 32 times. He'll talk about striving or chasing after the wind. Doesn't that sound futile? Striving or chasing after the wind. Nine times. And 29 times he will describe the despair of living in a world under curse, apart from God, as life under the sun. 29 times. What he means is when you try to live life, and it is what our world keeps telling us to do. As if there is no God. There's nothing beyond this. There's nothing higher. There's nothing better. There's nothing to hope for. Stop thinking that way. This is it. And when you die, that's it. That's life under the sun. And human beings, men and women, are not satisfied with that. And you know it. You know there's more. You know there's more. And you were made for more. And you long for more. And you wonder Because we're going to see a great verse in chapter 3, verse 11. That God has placed what in our hearts? Eternity. Human beings were not made to be satisfied by the temporal. They were given an eternity-sized vacuum that longs for more, more. And so this life without God has some horrible effects on us. I'm going to highlight just three of them. Here's the first, letter A. Life without God leaves you lonely and empty. Life without God leaves you lonely. Let me say something to you. Some of you, it's not that you just have such bad friends. It's not just that you have such a deficient spouse. It's not just that you have such a bad supervisor or boss. Guess what's really going on? No human being will ever fully satisfy. That longing you have for relationship is actually a longing to be in relationship with your creator, God, through his son, Jesus Christ. And when you have that, you can begin to let up on some of your horizontal relationships. These will never fully satisfy. Do you realize, I know as singles you struggle with loneliness and my heart goes out to you. It really does. But here's what some singles don't know. Do you know you can be married and painfully lonely? Some of you do. You can be married and painfully lonely because you're married to a sinner and it may not be going. You can still be lonely. You can be in a crowd and be lonely. There's this loneliness and emptiness that is inherent in humans because we were made to be in relationship with our creator God through his son, Jesus And so one of the biggest things that you'll see Ecclesiastes warn us about over and over and over and over is that the good things of life, and there are a lot of good things, the good things of life like food, work, sex, health, honor, pleasure, the good things of life, as good as they are, will never satisfy you if you try to make them into ultimate things. They were never designed to be ultimate things that ultimately satisfy you. They're good things, an extension of a good God. Enjoy them. Wake up on some days and say, in a fallen, broken world, I don't know why it's as good as it is. Right? Instead of like, oh, why did that party go sideways? Oh, why was that vacation so bad? Oh. Instead, we ought to be saying, why does anything go right? And when it does, when we have a, a family night, a game night, and no one got mad and no one fought, like, oh. Look at that. In a fallen, broken world. How could that happen? There is a God. Right? It's like, oh, when a project at work actually goes well and the whole team does what they were supposed to do. And the person who should get the credit gets the credit. You're like, oh, it happened once. Why? There's a God. There's grace even in the midst of this mess. Oh, good things that a good God gave us like food, work, sex honor, pleasure, enjoy them, thank God for them, but oh, do not make the mistake of trying to turn them into ultimate things that you hope will fully satisfy you because the good things of God cannot take the place of God because you have a God-shaped vacuum that was designed to be filled by relationship with him. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, forever ago, made a statement, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The good things of God were never designed to take the place Of God. When you begin to put that kind of pressure on them and that kind of expectation on them and that kind of hope on them, guess what it does? It crushes them. They collapse. They can't bear the weight of that kind of expectation because they weren't designed to do. You're trying to get them to do something they were not designed to do. You're actually longing for satisfaction in a relationship with God through His Son. If you try to make good things into God things, here's what will happen. You'll live exhausted, frustrated, disillusioned, with a trail of collateral damage and shattered dreams scattered behind you, all while you keep saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. What am I doing wrong? Why can't I be happy? Looks like others are happy. What am I doing wrong? I guess I don't have enough of the right stuff. I guess I'm not on the right path. You will stay frustrated, exhausted, disillusioned, and you'll be doing damage to everyone around you. Collateral damage, shattered dreams is your future. If you think you can live without God, and you can do it right here in this world, life under the sun take it from someone who already tried it oh we would always say to our kids we raised five kids you can either learn from others and go out and live or you can live and learn solomon is telling you you know some of you just think oh test me if i had tons of money i'd be i'd be happy i don't know what's wrong with all those other rich people you think you'd be different the people who have, quote, it all. Read People Magazine. Get online. They're in rehab. They're in, I almost feel sorry for anyone who hits it big. My, my wife loves country music, and I can't remember the name of this guy. And she cries because he's singing about his mother who prayed for him. And finally the, the prayers have been answered. And now all these concerts have been canceled, and there's something up. And I think he's drinking too much, and it's messed up his throat. It's almost like become successful and become miserable. Immediately concerts canceled because now why you would think that's what I want. Fame, a platform, lots of stuff. I can get what I want. Recipe for misery. You're like, try me. You won't be different because what it does, you guys, is actually human beings keep moving forward because they haven't gotten it yet and they think it will do it. Those who have it are the most miserable because they're like, I thought that would be it. And it's not. And it's not. I'll give you a current big example of this. Gender. My heart goes out and my heart breaks. Breaks for the young people that are being lied to. That think this will do it. If just I could have a gender change. If just I could do surgery. If just I could quote be who I really am. That will do it. We are going to watch the shrapnel. And the fallout. In the decades ahead. Of those who went down this path. Being told this will do it. And they're going to wake up. With a body that's been rearranged. But a heart that's the same. Don't hear me saying I hate them. I don't. I don't hate them at all. I'm broken hearted that our culture is lying to them like this. And then I see things like tweets from oh, Hillary Clinton. I'm just so proud. And and that's what they get. They get affirmation and celebration from everyone around them for being so brave and so true. But oh, it's such a lie. Such a lie. Doesn't matter what it is, whether it's money, you name it. What you actually need. Is God in your life through his son, Jesus Christ? That's what the human heart is longing for. Oh, but life without God is not just empty, you guys. We face even more. Letter B, life without God, oh, and even life with God, feels repetitive and futile. It's just that life without God, in the midst of this rep- repetition and futility, is just, it just drives you insane. Life without God is repetitive and futile. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. Well, I don't think Solomon's alone in this, you guys. Because you cannot escape the sense of futility that is inherent in our fallen world. We all bump right up against it. Who hasn't been frustrated by the repetitive nature of what life requires us to do and how hard it is to do it now? I don't know about you. I'm type A, so I can get I can get jazzed about doing stuff. But I don't stay equally jazzed about doing it all over again. I clean the gutters and next year I need to clean the gutters. I scrape and paint the four columns out front and I try to buy paint. I'm like, where's your till Jesus comes paint? You know, I've sanded and coated my front porch swing. I've actually gone into Home Depot and said, what do they use on boat docks? I mean, give me something. And then I'll do what you're supposed to do. I'll coat it. I'll sand it lightly. I'll coat it again. I'll sand it lightly. I'll coat it again. Three coats. And it's good for one summer. It's like, oh, so my swing right now looks hideous. I've lost heart. It's just like, oh, there it is again, as if I never did it. Right? Whether it's matching socks and doing laundry, what happens? Someone wears them and that needs to be done again. Where, whatever it is, it's not so much what we have to do. It's that we have to do it. Say it. Say it. And how hard it is. To do it, Sometimes you know the right thing to do and you think, if this is right, why is it so hard? If this is right, why is it so hard? Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun, cursed. We're living in a fallen, broken world. So the repetition and the sense of it being so hard is what drives us crazy. So here's what I want you to understand. Some good news in the midst of this. If you've ever been frustrated in life, Raise your hand if you've been frustrated. You've had a sense of, I'm frustrated. If you've ever been frustrated in life, you ready? You are close to being biblical. You are bumping right up against something biblical. You realize that? You realize when you get frustrated in life, you're bumping up against something biblical because God placed something here in this world. I'm gonna tell you something that might surprise some of you. We're gonna go to a passage that says, God is the one who subjected all of creation to futility. You're like, why would he do that? Oh, he's good, you guys. He's good. He's so good. He did it so that you would, oh, that it would push you, push you to look up. We don't look up. We just keep, we stay fixated right here. So that it would push you to look up Long for more and know you're not home. Not home. He doesn't want you to settle down here. He doesn't want you to get overly comfortable here. He doesn't want you to ever get enough of whatever to say, perfect, I don't need him. And then die and go to hell. If you've ever been frustrated, you're close to being biblical biblical. It's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of the most beloved, favorite chapters in the Bible, but I'm going to have us read what I think are the most neglected verses of the most well-loved chapter. We love the end. Nothing can separate us. Height, depth, angels, principalities. (gasps) And it is glorious. We love the all things work together for good. Go to Romans 8, verse 19. Romans 8, verse 19. Because Paul... Is explaining what Solomon experienced. And he's going to explain what we experience today. Even as Christians. Romans chapter 8. Beginning of verse 19. Romans 8 verse 19. For the creation. Waits. With eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. What you're going to see in this passage. Is is that we. We are intertwined. We as human beings, even Christians, are still intertwined with creation because there was a tether that connected us to a good, loving God that included us and all of creation. And so our God, when you read Revelation, is not just going to rescue us, redeem us, change us. Oh, here's what is so exciting to me. He is going to redeem this Fallen, broken creation and set it back to paradise and put on display. He's big enough not to just fix us, but to fix it all. He wins. Satan does not win. There's gonna be a new heaven and new earth. Ooh. Oh, trees, fields, animals, music, everything glorious minus sin. Oh. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. That's what's coming. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to. Say the word. Frustration or futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Do not make a mistake. That's not talking about Satan. God. God. Because of him who subjected it in, oh, here's a good word, hope. Hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been, say it. We live in a groaning world. Groaning. You're going to see in this passage, by the time I stop reading in verse 26. Groaning three times, hoping six times, and waiting three times. Groaning, hoping, waiting, groaning, hoping, waiting. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation. Yeah, we wish it was just the creation. Not only the creation. But we ourselves, and now he's, he's talking about believers. You don't stop groaning, you guys. He just adds some amazing things to your groaning. Oh, we have things that unbelievers don't have. But we groan. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise. Oh, here's a good verse. The older I get and the more burdened and disturbed I become about our world and people I love, the more precious this verse is to me. Because there are times that I don't know what to pray or say. Guess what? Good news right here. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we walk, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It is okay to groan. I give you permission because the Bible gives you it's okay to groan. Groan. It's a constant reminder. Groaning reminds you you're not home. You're not home. You're not home. There's a reason this is like, oh, this is hard. Oh, I'd like for this to end. Oh, I kind of hope for something better. There is groaning, hoping. See, biblical hope is a confident expectation in future blessing It's based on something, based on the character and promises of God. Hope, biblical hope is a confident expectation. In future blessing, based on the character and promises of God. Six times he says, we hope. Because we know a God. We know he doesn't change. We know he doesn't fail. And he's made promises. But let me help you with this word, wait. Three times it says, wait. It's not how we use the word. We're like, I'm waiting. You're late. I'm waiting. Waste of time. Biblical waiting is a posture of expectation. Leaning in. God's up to something. God's up to something now. And he's certainly up to something in the future. So we wait. We have expectation. We have hope. So he adds three amazing things to our groaning. He does not remove the groaning. You're still in a groaning, fallen, broken world. Working with other sinner groaners. Living with one. Birthing some. Trying to make friends with some. That's why if you think, this is kind of hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. But oh, he's given us hope, expectation, and the spirit of the living God inside of us. Somebody say thank you, Jesus. That's why when the disciples said, Jesus, don't leave us, don't leave us. He said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I must go so that I can send the helper. Praise God. I don't have to figure out if Jesus is in Capernaum or Bethany or Jerusalem and go see him and hear him. I wake up with Jesus. Jesus lives in me. The spirit of God is in me. Resurrection power is in me. The fruit of the spirit is blossoming in me. I have understanding of his word. I have direct access to his throne. And the spirit grows. Groans in and through and for me. Thank you. Mic drop. That's good. Oh, you say, oh, I wish I had this or I wish I had that. I wish you would know what you do have. Yeah. This is what you do have. Get to know it. And it's not get to know it. It's get to know him. You have a person, not just anybody. Yeah. Spirit of the risen Jesus Christ. Christ living in you. You do not groan alone. Mm, 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 mm. But there's one more thing I want you to see about life without God. Life without God keeps you asking all the wrong questions. Oh, please, no, we are not that group. I think it's terrible when Christians are so scared they act like it's wrong to ask questions. But what about, what about, what about? It is not wrong to ask questions. In fact, it's very human to ask questions because we're created in the image of God. And so we want things to make sense. We want to connect the dots. We want there to be purpose. We we're the ones that started philosophy departments, not monkeys, not golden retrievers. None of them started anything like that. We're the ones that long to make sense of it. And the way you do that is you ask questions. You poke. That's not wrong. But you know what's even better than asking questions? Asking the right questions. Asking the right questions. Oh, Solomon's memoir, you're going to see it. Solomon asked 32 questions. 32 questions you're going to hear. Problem? 32 questions that are all rhetorical, cynical, and focused on why. But why this? Why is this so hard? Why am I so disappointed? Why, 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 why? Now, this might be hard for some of you, but it's not just Ecclesiastes. It's the entire Bible that shows us if you stay fixated on why questions, you will stay frustrated because God has not chosen to answer a lot of the why. Why? But I just took you to Genesis 3, and if you'd pay attention and know your Bible, you get some why. Genesis 3 gives us a huge why things are the way they are. But I know what it is you want. You want particulars with your zip code, your daughter, your job, your, right? And he never promised that. Job, there's another big poetry wisdom book that some people equally hate because it's messy. And Job asks 74 questions that were focused on why did God answer his why questions he gave him a huge who he doesn't give us explanations he gives us a greater revelation of who he is in the midst of the mess I know you think explanations would would solve it for me I would live so much better with explanations you would not Watch it with your kids. What happens when, with all their why questions? Does it end? It just leads to another why. And a why. And a why. And a why. And a why. And we're no different. He's infinite. We're finite. You would come to no end of your whys. But oh, he chooses to give us more who it is that's with you. In and when you know who it is that's with you, and you're in a relationship with him through his son in the midst of the mess, that is far greater than explanations for why and what is going on. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Vrogup captures it well when he says, quote, boldly asking God for help based on who he is and what he's promised eclipses the complaints. I say eclipses for a reason. It captures the fact that why questions are not always answered before we move into request. Just, I love this illustration he's going to give. Just as one heavenly body moves into the shadow of another during an eclipse, so too the why questions and the who questions coexist, but not equally. Who God is becomes more prominent reality while not removing the lingering questions. As we make our bold request, why is this happening, moves into the shadow of who is God. Who is God? When you know who God is, and you know how faithful God is, and you know how unchanging God is, and you get a hold of some of the promises of God, you can rest in the midst of mess. And trust him, trust him and wait and hope and groan and wait and hope and groan. And you have direct access to cry out to his throne, to lay hold of him. And that leads to my final point about Ecclesiastes. Number three, you're going to see on display why God had to give us his son. Oh, you and I cannot fix ourselves. The world thinks it can fix this education. Money, technology, new identity, greater freedom to do bizarre things and whatever we want will lead to fixing it. It will not. All we're having is greater complexity of greater messes that people two centuries ago would say, you're kidding me. You're kidding me. One one day people would say this and do this. You see why God had to give us his son. We cannot fix ourselves and we will never fix the mess Of this world, no matter how hard we try, because education, technology and information will never be enough. We needed more than information. We needed transformation that can only happen through Jesus. Oh, Solomon could give us insights and information about this life. Jesus says, I came to bring about transformation. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. Now, one who is greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about himself. Jesus is saying, Solomon could give you information. Wisest man on the world, on the earth. I came to give you transformation, real change. He came to give us everything we need, which was way more than wisdom. See, Solomon saw the problem. Solomon felt the problem. Solomon was stuck in the middle of the problem, just like we are. But he could not fix it because he could not forgive sins. He had nothing powerful enough to repair the tether that had been severed, that connected us, all of creation and human beings, to a wise, good loving personal god solomon couldn't do that but jesus did that's why 1st corinthians chapter 1 says this he jesus became to us wisdom okay thank you great but watch way more than what solomon could do wisdom from god righteousness he gives us his Righteousness. He becomes for us righteousness as we stand before God as sinners. God sees his righteousness instead of our sin. That's what Jesus does for the Christian. He gives us righteousness, he gives us sanctification, he gives us redemption. Redemption means to pay a price to buy someone back from a strange, foreign place of captivity. He bought us back, he gave us his righteousness way more than wisdom. What about you today? Are you still chasing after the things of this world? Thinking. Thinking. I just haven't figured it all out yet, but I will. Or I just don't have enough of the right stuff. Oh, listen to me. I plead with you. You can chase and you can strive for the rest of your life. Or you can surrender and begin to thrive in a relationship with your creator God through his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, and he'll meet you in the mess, give you rest so that you go from the frustration of endless chasing to the joy and peace of embracing your creator God through his son. You can have that today. Today, because it's a free gift to everyone who will believe and receive. Today, if you've been frustrated, if you've been chasing, if you've been confused, if you feel crushed and broken, oh, listen to me. Come to Christ. The free offer goes out today. Come to Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. Receive Christ into your life. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. For taking on flesh and sending your son into this twisted world that was collapsing in on itself. To rescue and redeem and reconcile rebellious sinners who had pushed away from you. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. To repair the tether that had been severed. And you paid the price for us. To have us to adopt us, to love us, to fill us. Oh, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.